I hear from people every single day that it's actually changing their behavior. And that to me was the primary criteria for a successful product is can you put this book into action? And so it was less important to me that I, I came up with my own shiny framework that I can slap my brand on. And it, what was important to me was, could I create something that inspired you to take action and to actually change your behavior? Um, and I can't like look in on all these teams and see if that's really true, but from the feedback I'm getting, I think that I, I hit the mark and that is really rewarding. Um, and so to me, the book, not just the number of sales, but the fact that people are doing something with it um, is the biggest indicator of success. Hey everyone, and welcome to For the Love of Product, brought to you by the Product-Led Alliance. I'll be your host, Tiana Hanson-Drury, Chief Product Officer at Mina Technologies and all around passionate product aficionado. Each episode, we'll be looking at the head and the heart behind product-led growth, the passion and the practice of product. And we'll be picking the brains of seasoned CPOs and heads of products, as well as visionary founders and investors getting their inside stories. Enjoy. This episode is brought to you by ThoughtSpot, the modern analytics cloud company building a more fact-driven world with consumer-grade search and AI-driven analytics. Build stickier product experiences by embedding ThoughtSpot Everywhere's interactive analytics interface directly into your data app or product. No more delayed release cycles or incremental UX improvements. ThoughtSpot Everywhere's developer-friendly platform replaces static dashboards with an interactive data experience in minutes, allowing users to intuitively dig into their data and trigger actions in their favorite business apps. Learn more and try ThoughtSpot for free today by visiting thoughtspot.com everywhere. Welcome to another episode of For the Love of Product. I am really pleased to have with me today, Teresa Torres. And for those of you who are not familiar with Teresa, she's an internationally acclaimed author, speaker, and coach. Uh, She teaches a structured and sustainable approach to continuous discovery that helps product teams infuse their daily product decisions with customer input. And that is more important today, um, I would say, than any point in which I've been in product. Uh, She's coached tons of different teams spanning companies of all sizes, from early stage startups to global enterprises in a variety of industries. And she's taught over 8,500 product people discovery skills through the Product Talk Academy. She's also the author of the book, Continuous Discovery Habits. Uh, If you haven't read that, I highly, highly recommend that you check it out. And she blogs and can be found at producttalk.org. Teresa, welcome to the pod. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. Where are you zooming in from? I am based in Bend, Oregon, which a lot of people aren't familiar with that. It's right in the middle of uh, Oregon. It's a mountain resort town. I am very familiar with Bend. I used Ah, to live in Seattle and I've got a really great uh, business partner who's in Bend, actually. So you are lucky to be there. And I hear that uh, there's been a lot of people flocking there during the pandemic is what I've been told. There has been a lot of people flocking here during the pandemic. In fact, I'm kind of one of them. In that, oh, you um, were. <laughs> before the pandemic, we split our time between Portland and Bend. Um, and then uh, during and then since the pandemic, we mostly were like 98% time in Bend. We go back to Portland for like a long weekend here or there. I'm jealous. I'm one of those people that if I could be more in the country, I would be. So someday maybe I'll join you in Bend if I'm lucky. You know, I think cities are going to get fun again. It's just going to take a little bit of time and we might shift back to more even. But right now, the outdoor play in Bend is pretty fantastic. I'll check back with you in a year and we'll see how that's going on the fun, the fun meter. Um, So first of all, uh, I know you through your book, but can you give a little background um, for those who haven't read your book? 
give me a five minute elevator pitch on who you are, what you, what you're excited about, introduce yourself to the audience. Yeah. So I've spent the last, um, the greater part of the last 10 years working as a discovery coach. Um, discovery is a little bit of jargon. It's just the work we do to decide what to build. Um, so it's really, I geek out on decision-making and critical thinking and just, and how do we be really, um, how do we serve our customers in a way that also helps us serve our business? Um, I've been really lucky. I've gotten to work with teams all over the world. Um, and I really look at uh, a discovery framework as my product. And so how do I find ways to make it easier for teams to adopt a continuous discovery cadence than to not? Um, and that led to the book and a variety of other things we can get into. The book, by all accounts, uh, from the outside looking in, seems like it's been a wild success. Uh, would you agree? Yeah, it's been mind-blowing. Um, I think I set a goal of I wanted to sell 15,000 books in the first year, which, by the way, was a really aggressive goal. Like a publisher told me that a successful nonfiction book typically sells 10,000 copies over its lifetime. Uh, but I knew some sales numbers for some other product books. And so I was like, I want to do at least as well as them. Um, and I've sold 25,000 books in the first six and a half months. Amazing. That's yeah. fantastic. That's so fantastic. Walk us through how you kind of put your plan together on how to smash that goal, right? I mean, did you have kind of like an OKR framework in your mind? Did you have a, a yeah. recipe for success? You know, there's tons of articles about how to sell a lot of books. And I really think the, like one of the lists that I saw really resonated with me because the number one thing on the list was just write a really good book. And reading the reviews on my book, I think I wrote a really good book. And I don't mean that from like an ego sense. I used a continuous discovery process to write the book. So everything in the book was tested. It was tested with lots of teams over many years. Um, I know a lot of books are super high level and not very actionable and they're hard to put into practice. I worked very hard to make an actionable book. Um, and I'm really pleased to see that a lot of the feedback is that, that it's a very pragmatic, actionable book. Um, and I think that's definitely helping sales. Um, I've also had 10 years to build my audience. I've spoken at all the big conferences. So I definitely already had a platform and a voice. And that certainly helps. Um, but I think it's like all things when we're talking about product-led growth, it starts with create a really good product. Um, and that was my primary, that was my primary strategy was write the best book that I could write. I wasn't just trying to write a book out there to grow sales. I really thought about my book as a product um, in and of itself and did what I could to make it as successful as possible from a quality standpoint. And then, um, you know, marketing matters. And for the first three or four months, I did a promotional event every day. So I've been doing a ton of public speaking and a ton of podcasts. Those are a lot harder, like from an OKR standpoint to measure. Um, is that selling books? Probably. Is there a way to measure that? Not really. Um, it's a lot of fun for me, so that's fine. Um, but I really think it starts with just starting with a really good product. So over the past 10 years, as you were kind of refining your audience and refining your core competency, I guess, in this area, I mean, take a step back to that, that point 10 years ago. Were you clear that where your special kind of niche was going to be was in this discovery space? Uh, did that come as an evolution during that time? Tell us about how you found your, I mean, your space to, or your focus on discovery as opposed to other parts of the value life cycle of a product. And the different, you know, kind of disciplines there. 
Yeah. So it's a little bit of both. So I feel like discovery has always been a part of my mindset and who I am. I was really lucky um, as a college student, I was introduced to human-centered design. I did a lot of work as an interaction designer. Um, and I always tried to include what we would call modern discovery practices in my work, um, even from my very first job. I just sort of naively thought that's how business worked. Um, but it took a while for me to find that language. Like I remember when I first read Marty Kagan talking about the distinction between discovery and delivery, like it was a light bulb for me. I was like, yes, it's the discovery side we need to get better at. And it's the discovery side that I'm really passionate about. And then I just also happened to geek out on decision-making and critical thinking. And those align really nicely with this sort of idea of customer centricity and um, iterative design. And um, so it really was the uh, sort of epicenter of a lot of really related ideas that already resonated with me. Um, 10 years ago, when I started consulting, it took some time for me to sort of hone in on um, this is the area of focus and this is, um, and I'm going to focus on coaching and not on consulting. Um, so I didn't, I didn't just like start on day one saying I'm a discovery coach and this is what that looks like. And this is what I offer. Um, it definitely took some trial and error and some experimentation. Um, but I think the core concepts have always been a part of who I am and how I've worked. You, you said that discovery has always been a part of your mindset, right? And that you had a term, it sounds like maybe even while in school, modern discovery practices. If you could go back and look at what those modern discovery practices were and compare them to today, how, how much have they changed drastically? How much are they just, you found the right language for it, as you said? Um, I'm curious, like if you could take a post-it from them of what you considered to be you know, modern discovery practice, and then you look at the book today, what's the evolution there? Yeah, I think there's a couple things. So the big one is, so as an undergraduate in college, I went to Stanford. Um, Stanford has a, a long tradition of human-centered design, both in their computer science department and their mechanical engineering department. Those two departments came together and created the D-School. I was there before the D-School, but both programs had human-centered design um, cores to their curriculum. Um, so I was really fortunate in that I got introduced to these ideas at the very start of my career. Um, I think those concepts are exactly the same as what we're talking about in discovery. The key difference is that um, we used to look at it as this is what designers do. And I think one thing that we get with modern discovery is this is what cross-functional product teams do. And I think that's a really important distinction um, because I think it allows us to leverage a, a more diverse expertise on our teams, but it adds a challenge in that the challenge is if you're a lone designer, um, you're making decisions with one person. If you're on a cross-functional team, in addition to learning how all those human-centered activities, you also ha have to learn how to work and make decisions collaboratively and cross-functionally, and that's not trivial. And so I think a lot of what I tried to tackle in the book are what are those exercises you can do it as a team to make that cross-functional collaboration easier and not um, sort of consensus hell. Absolutely. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how it's gone since releasing the book? Like, obviously, the reaction from a sales perspective has been really um, great. But what have you learned? What's pushed you? What's surprised you about people's reactions to this content that you've been working with for 10 plus years, right? Yeah, it's, I got really strong feedback from my reviewers, except for one. And one reviewer, I did get strong feedback. 
But I, I also got feedback that maybe there wasn't anything new in the book. And that really planted this like scary seed of like, oh, did I just write yet another product book that like we don't really need? Thankfully, I think he was wrong. And um, the feedback I'm getting is there's a lot like, while some of the individual practices might might not be new, like interviewing is not new and experience mapping is not new and story mapping is not new. I think the opportunity solution tree is new-ish. Um, lots of people do similar things, but I think it's new-ish. I think it's not about new. I like, I think that's the wrong criteria. It's about, is it helpful? Does it help you change your behavior? And I think overwhelmingly the feedback that I've gotten is that this book is very pragmatic. It's very actionable. I hear from people every single day that it's actually changing their behavior. And I, that to me was the primary criteria for a successful product is can you put this book into action? And so it was less important to me that I, like, I came up with my own shiny framework that I can slap my brand on. And it, what was important to me was, could I create something that inspired you to take action and to actually change your behavior? Um, and I can't like look in on all these teams and see if that's really true. But from the feedback I'm getting, I think that I, I hit the mark and that is really rewarding. Um, and so to me, the book, not just the number of sales, but the fact that people are doing something with it um, is the biggest indicator of success. Absolutely. Well, it's only one other person, but I can tell you that my whole team, one of uh, the books that we read was uh, this book and the team uses OSTs um, pretty religiously at this point. I mean, they don't, it's not a requirement, but (laughs) it's just clear that it's such a good way of visually mapping and understanding the opportunities. It, It just works. Right. And then going back to your kind of number one criteria, write a book that actually works and improves the lives of the readers. Um, you, I can say that there's a group of people who definitely have found a lot of value just based on their behavior change after reading it. Yeah. And, you know, I'll say, like, I think we're kind of obsessed with new and I don't think we need a lot of new. I think we just need to be better at the things we already know. Um, or just leverage the history <laughs> yeah, more. <laughs> right. Like I don't, we don't need a lot of new methods. We just need to make the methods easier to use. And I think that was, I really thought about like, what do I think I can contribute? And I think one of the skills that I have is is translating these big lofty ideas into something that's actually pragmatic. And so that was one of the things, that was one of my personal goals is I wanted to write something that inspired you to change your daily behavior. And that came from my coaching practice. So I used to have customers come to me and say, hey, will you teach a workshop? And I literally would say to those prospects, Um, Tell me about the last workshop you sent your team to. Okay, now tell me about the behavior change you saw. And workshops don't change behavior. It's really hard. And there's a reason for it. You go to a workshop, you tend to learn in the context of a case study, which is great. Case case studies facilitate learning. But then you go back to work and the teacher goes on to their next workshop. And when it's time to translate it to your own work, you have to do that all on your own. And I actually think that's the hardest part about learning is like, okay, you gave me these big ideas. Now, how do I do it in my own context? And so one of the things that I really focused on as a coach is how do we take these best practices and translate them to your own unique organizational context? And I think that is the real work. Yeah, I remember actually when I first heard about your book, I think it was Marty Kagan who had just been on the show and had posted about if you've never had a really good product coach, this is a great great tool for you. 
for our audience, um, which often does include startups that are product led, but maybe haven't built out full product organizations, how do you work with organizations? Like how, you know, and, and how has that potentially changed during COVID um, or how has your business changed during COVID? But like, obviously there's the book, that's one of your touch points, but how do you work with people from a coaching perspective? Yeah, so I actually made a pretty dramatic change right around the start of COVID. I was already sort of leaning that direction. What I did historically was I ran a 12-week coaching program where I coached product trios. Um, this is where the content from the book came from. That was really, um, I would, my goal was to start with the product trio regardless of how they worked and in 12 weeks, get them adopting the framework that you read about in the book. So what do I mean by that? Starting with the outcome, interviewing continuously, assumption testing continuously, making sure that what they're building is creating customer value by addressing unmet opportunities and creating business value by driving their outcome. And that was a really fun problem for me. How do you do that? Teams start from all different sorts of starting points. How do you quickly in a 12-week period get them to being a well-functioning continuous discovery team? And that work was a lot of fun. It's how I developed the curriculum, the content that's in the book. Um, but I hit a point where I started to recognize that that business model was really limited. So I would work with 30 teams in a year. So effectively, I would impact 90 people. Um, and so I started to think about how do I have more impact? And in 2017, I started to experiment with online courses. Online courses can be tricky. Like a lot of online courses are designed to be self-paced courses. Like the dirty little secret of the online course industry is that only like 40% of people, if that, like that's a high number, ever make it through the course. Um, I'm really interested in changing behavior. So if you buy my course, but you don't finish it and it doesn't change your behavior, that's not that exciting to me. I don't want to put effort into that. So I started to think about how could I create an online experience that had better learning outcomes? So that led to our first course, Continuous Interviewing. I designed it not to be a self-paced information-only product because that's what has really poor outcomes. It's really a hands-on um, practice-oriented course where students practice interviewing each other. Um, it was always a side business for me, um, but it was fun and students loved the course and I just sort of did it on the side. And then what happened in March of 2020 when COVID really hit the world and companies started responding at that time, like up until that point, I not only always had a full book of coaching business, but I always had a six plus month waiting list. So I had a lot of predictability in my business. Um, it was a very healthy business. It was a very nice lifestyle. Um, but I was hitting this limit, this impact limit of, I could only work with 90 people. And, um, I was sort of dabbling with this online course on the side and trying to find a model that worked. And then COVID hit and, uh, I was in the middle of a coaching term. So I didn't have an immediate impact on my revenue, but for my next term, my summer term, almost every company that I was working with backed out, they basically said, uh, we are not in a position where we can spend money. We're trying to figure out how to respond to the global pandemic. Can we push, can we delay coaching? Um, and then, so then I went to people on my waiting list and everybody on my waiting list said, uh, we're not in a position to spend money. So I effectively, at that time, coaching was 90% of my revenue. My online course was about 10% of my revenue. And I could see the writing on the wall. Like I knew coaching was going to come back, but I had no idea when. And I knew I was going to have this period of time um, where, uh, I just was going to have no revenue. Now, fortunately, like that sounds like a horrible crisis. I'm a small company. I'm a company of two. I'd had a really good Q1. If I had to, I could have lived and paid 
my employee's salary off of just my Q1 income. So I wasn't, it wasn't like totally catastrophic, but it was pretty scary. Um, and so I did what I teach and I just looked at, okay, let's go back to my opportunity space. What has changed? Um, and how do I respond and how do I experiment really quickly? And so two of the things on my opportunity space that I really looked at, like high level opportunities, my coaching business was designed to address an opportunity for product leaders. And the opportunity was along the lines of, I'm a product leader. I know my team should work this way. How do I get them there? Right? So that's like a training need. Um, I need my teams to work this way. I don't have time to get them there. What's the solution? And that was my 12-week coaching program. And what I saw change was product leaders still had that need, but they didn't have the willingness to pay. There was too much economic uncertainty. And so I just took a step back and I said, well, in every economic downturn, um, lots of individuals use that opportunity to invest in their own skills. I don't see any reason why COVID is going to be any different. So I'm going to shift, I'm going to temporarily shift my focus to a different opportunity, which is I'm an individual product person and I want to invest in my discovery skills. And I realized I had already had a foothold in that space. I had already had this online course. And so I looked at what are products I can launch in the short term where I'm selling to an individual instead of selling to a company. And I launched multiple experiments. So at that time, we only had one course, continuous interviewing. And the next, I think in uh, July of 2020, we launched um, uh, Defining Outcomes. And I think in fall of 2020, we launched uh, Opportunity Mapping. So we launched two more courses. I also, in May of 2020, launched my first subscription product. And that was an early reader subscription. So it was for people... I was writing my book. It was a subscri monthly subscription program that would allow people to read a chapter as I wrote it. So I would write a chapter. I would give it to my early readers. They would, we would get on a call. They would give feedback. Um, it was a really, it was like $19 a month. So it wasn't a super expensive subscription. It gave them early access to the book. I knew a ton of people were waiting to read the book. And I was also interested in just learning about subscription business models. Um, so that's what I did. I just launched all those experiments. Um, there were probably other ones. I'm trying to remember what I did that didn't work out, but it's a little bit hard to remember all the details now. Um, and it worked. I mean, we basically saw what ended up happening was um, with everybody working from home, companies wanted two things. They wanted a way to keep their teams engaged. So they were way more interested in online courses than they were before the pandemic. And they also wanted to bring in speakers. They could no longer do offsites. So they wanted to like make something special about a virtual onsite. And so I started doing a ton of corporate speaking. And just between those experiments, so corporate speaking, experimenting with a subscription program, launching new courses, it allowed me to like dabble in a lot of different areas, bring in a little bit of revenue in those areas, but really start to learn about what's a more scalable business model. Um, how can I impact more people? And how can I do it in a way that diversifies my risk? So I'm not just selling to companies. It's a phenomenal uh, application of, you know, kind of dog fooding your own, your own work. Right. And 
the interesting thing is, you know, as you're describing back to March 2020, which just takes you there in a moment. I mean, so many people could have benefited from keeping that coaching, right? Because there was so much invention that reinvention mm-hmm. that happened. But I mean, the other thing that I think when you're describing this is how useful that framework, that opportunity solution tree framework would have been not just for product professionals, but for anyone who's running a business and thinking about what do you do when, you know, opportunity, opportunity option one over here, suddenly, as you said, like willingness to pay dries up overnight, which doesn't happen that often. But I mean, have you had interest from people outside of the product or, you know, coming in and speaking at a corporation for product? Because I think there's a lot of scale in actually the the framework that you use wider than just making product decisions. So I want to go back to something you said, and then I'll come back to that answer. You just said revenue doesn't dry up overnight that often. I actually disagree. I've been in this situation before, and it's why March 2020 was not that scary to me. So in the 2008 economic downturn, I was a startup CEO. We sold recruiting software, and we sold university alumni community software. And what happened in 08? Everybody stopped hiring, and universities lost budget because either state endowment, either their endowment shrank because the stock market um, uh, tanked or state budgets were cut. Right. And so we literally saw a 66% revenue drop in a 60 day period. And that was a venture backed company with employees. It was terrifying. Um, but it taught me you, your business has to be resilient enough to face these economic, essentially, disasters. And so when COVID hit, I was like, okay, well, I've been in this situation before. And at least this time, I have one employee and I brought in enough revenue already to cover my expenses for the year. So my zero cash date is not three weeks from now, which it often was in my startup. And I have time to figure this out and I have time to experiment. And I actually think the most important thing for a business to do is to make sure that they have the runway to have that resiliency because it is true that your revenue can go away on a dime. And sometimes it's a giant global economic downturn. Sometimes it's a new competitor comes and eats your lunch and it happens a lot faster than you think. So I think this is actually a really important business mindset to always be in a position where you can shift rapidly and that you buy yourself time to experiment. So fair point. No, fair point. I feel really fortunate that like I'd had that experience and that I knew not to panic and I knew a way, a path. Like I teach teams how to do this. So I was really well equipped to like, okay, I don't know what the answer is, but I'm going to run a lot of experiments. And I'll tell you, It was terrifying, even though I know how to do this, it doesn't remove the fear. In fact, uh, my partner and I ended up making a really funny bet because I was really stressed out in March of 2020. I really thought all of my business was gonna go to zero. I was really concerned about, am I just gonna pay for an employee out of my own personal pocket, which is terrifying, but I also don't wanna just fire my employee without knowing what's gonna happen. So we were having a conversation over this at dinner and he was like, Teresa, you're gonna figure it out. And I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, you're just going to run experiments and you're going to figure it out. And he was like, so sure. And I was like, no, I'm not. And I mean, that's not guaranteed. And he said, do you want to bet on it? And I said, well, what do you want to bet? And in Portland, there's this really nice steakhouse ringside. And he goes, let's bet a ringside dinner. And I go, okay, well, how's this bet going to work? And he goes, well, if um, I think you're going to have your best year ever. And I was like, you're crazy. Like, I just saw all my revenue go to zero. I'm not going to have my best year ever in 2020. And he goes, okay, if you have your best year ever, you're going to buy me dinner. And if you don't, I'm going to buy you dinner. And I was like, 
okay, well, I can't lose this bet. I'm either going to have my best year ever and I'm going to buy you dinner or I'm going to not and you're going to buy me a really nice steak dinner. So we made that bet and it turns out he was right. 2020 um, was my best year until 2021. And uh, this is now an annual bet and really it's just turned into our dinner to celebrate growth. <laughs> just you buying him dinner at ringside each yeah, year. Basically, you just keep kicking butt each um, year. Because <laughs> product talk keeps growing. But I share that story because it really was a moment of fear. Like now that it's a success story, it's easy to be like, oh, I just experimented and it was no big deal. It really was terrifying. And I really had six weeks of just a lot of anxiety. I did not have a, I had a little bit of experience selling to individuals. I did not have a lot. I didn't know how quickly I could ramp it up. At that time, there was still a lot of resistance to online courses. Was it a valid way to learn? People wanted in-person workshops. Um, I actually had exposure. Like I had already been doing in-person workshops. And at the time COVID hit, I had deposits down on two different in-person venues. I was terrified I was going to lose all that money. Thankfully, thanks to force mature clauses and contracts, I didn't lose any of that money. But at that time, I didn't know it, right? I thought that I was going to have zero revenue revenue, and have about 45K in outstanding costs that I was just going to have to pay out of pocket. So I can't emphasize this enough. Like looking back, it looked like, oh, you just experimented and figured it out. But in the moment, it really did feel like a crisis and was very scary. It, I mean, that's that's one of the things I always like to dive into here because it's so easy in hindsight to cr- construct the narrative and say, this yeah. is how it went, right? And even we ourselves forget <laughs> sometimes because it's coping, right? How how tough it was in the moment. Um, but I think your point that you meant, uh, you made about actually, you know, revenue can dry up overnight. And you're right. I mean, we've had recessions every, you know, 10, 20 years, you know, for the last last 50 years. So I I guess it's a fair point. But the question I'm curious about is like, have you seen adoption and interest outside of maybe the traditional product buyer? Because as you said, this is really a business uh, strategy, right? And I see huge scaling opportunity there. So just like agile started as sort of this delivery mindset. And then now we talk about whole businesses being agile. I think the same is true with continuous discovery. I actually teach a course at Northwestern um, and it's not in their business school for product people. It's actually in their school of um, SSB, School of Education and Social Policy. And um, the program is, it's a master's in learning and organizational change. A lot of executives um, do that master's. A lot of HR people, people in learning and development um, departments do that master's. And um, we apply this exact same framework to things like how to keep your employees engaged or how to get your employees to share knowledge in the organization or how to inclu- um, increase team collaboration. And it turns out the exact same framework works. And I think the reason for that is I really drew from decision-making and critical thinking research when developing and evolving the framework. So I do think it is applicable. Some of the like specific hows might change a little bit, but not very much. I think that's great. I'm happy to hear because for all the graduates of that program, I think the work that they go on and do will be so much better for having that tool set for them. Yeah. And then the other thing I want to share, because I I really hate when people come and talk about their success stories and I don't, it's easy to talk about (laughs) success after the fact, right? So I want to share that 2020, I did win that bet. It did at that point, it was my strongest year in my business. It wasn't because all of my experiments were successful. What ended up happening was in the fall, coaching came back, right? But I chose not to coach. I had already partnered with Hope Gurion, who takes on our new coaching teams. And so when coaching came back, 
I was able to give all of that work to Hope. And she basically licenses my curriculum from me. So I get some revenue from that. And I still focused on growing our course business because I learned something really surprising um, in 2020. And that's that there are very easy ways to make online courses be really effective. And I was also starting to learn how to make subscription programs effective. And what mattered to me about those two things is they scale. I just wrote a blog post about this um, that came out on January 19th. Coaching is an, is an amazing high value activity. I think it's still one of the best things you can buy for your product teams, but we're really limited in capacity. Whereas courses, um, we actually can take on a lot more students. We can create a really great experience and we're starting to see amazing outcomes from our online courses because they're not information only products. Like we're really teaching people how to interview better and how to map the opportunity space. Um, and so that's really important to me because a lot of that growth First of all, 2020 was only a little tiny bit better than 2019 as we ran all these experiments. But 2021, we actually saw explosive growth. And it's because all of those experiments started to lay, started to bloom, right? And so now we have four courses that are growing where we're selling them out months in advance. And we have a new subscription program that's tied to the book that is growing. And that, pro that program, it's... I think we have like, actually, I can tell you as of right now, we have 180 paid members. It's tiny. It's 180 times 19. That's not a lot of monthly revenue. But I can see the business model grows. It scales, right? And for me, it's a really fun design problem of how do we bring coaching to the masses, right? I can't bring my 12-week coaching program to the masses, but I do believe that with this community, I can experiment with ways of how do we bring coaching in a group environment at a really low cost, because I strongly believe everybody deserves access to a coach. And I know that's not possible. So what I love about what came out of that year of experimentation is it's given me different models, business models to play with, different types of products to play with. And it's all helping me further this goal of like, how do we bring coaching to everybody in a way that works, that economically works, that works at scale? Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that, I mean, it was interesting to hear your stat that, you know, only 40% of people go on to complete the um, kind of self-driven courses. Uh, and I, I had a chance to experiment a bit with this over COVID as well, because a different organization I'm in, we decided to lean in and create a professional development course program. And I, I mean, I think it'll be really interesting to see where you go because, and maybe it was a pandemic effect, but you know, what we heard from the course participants is how personalized it felt, even if it was, you know, courses that were one to many, it really did mm -hmm. feel inclusive and it felt interactive and they felt like they built a community with it. So I wonder, it'll be interesting to see how things change and how, you know, the expectations about interactions change as we maybe return to, to less virtual worlds uh, in the future, yeah. but who knows? I do think we're going to return to in-person workshops. I mean, that's, I think a lot of times when companies buy training, they're not buying training. They're buying in a, a special event, right? They're buying an experience. And I think that matters. I think it matters for teams to step outside of their work and drink from the fire foes and get inspired. But I don't think that's the best way to change behavior. I think the best way to change behavior is to meter the learning into digestible bits, which you cannot do in a two-day workshop, to support people when they're learning, so they're learning in the context of a case study, and then to follow on and support them as they translate it to their own work. 
You can't do that in a workshop. You get one or the other. Um, so I think what we're seeing is a lot of people, thanks to COVID, are getting to experience that you can get better learning outcomes, not as good, better learning outcomes through some of these virtual experiences. And I don't think we're going back. I mean, I think we're going to have both, but I think there's always going to be a space for uh, virtual online learning over time. And I'm excited yeah, I, about that. I think as an instructor and someone who cares deeply about learning outcomes, I think it's a much better format. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think your example about the workshops and I, the same thing came to mind about um, conferences. You know, we used to talk a lot about spending money on sending people to conferences and it, it felt the same way, right? Like you're so inspired or you're so engaged in the moment, but then it's like you go back to the real world and it's so difficult to apply that, which is one of the things I loved about your book was really encouraging the teams to put the structure in place to have to apply it every week, right? Yep. So yeah, I think... Um... I used, here's what I love. So when I would teach an in-person workshop, there'd be 40 people in the room. Inevitably, I'm flying somewhere, I'm teaching the workshop. During every break, when I literally am exhausted because I'm an introvert teaching a two-day workshop, somebody's coming up asking me a question. We don't have time for all the questions. I'm barely getting names of students. And then we're done and we leave. In my six-week masterclass, which is what I turned my two-week workshop into, I get to know every single student we have time in class for live real-time conversation. They get support in between sessions in Slack so they can ask as many questions as they want. We literally have time for every single student to say, well, here's my unique organizational challenge and we can actually answer all of those questions. They're learning in bite-sized chunks where they can actually um, play with the lesson live in class, then try to translate it to their own work in between. When they get stuck, they can ask for help. It's a dramatically better way to learn. The challenge is the leaders who buy the training are not getting to experience that difference in the learning, which is why I think they're still going to ask to buy in-person workshops and that's not ever going to go away. But I think for leaders that care the most about learning outcomes, this really is the best way to learn. Interesting you saying that. Um, I'm I'm considering uh, expanding and giving a few of the folks on my team access to your um, Slack community so that they can mm -hmm. have access. And I'm in there right now and I've been mm -hmm. watching it and seeing, thinking, okay, I'm one of your small sample set of 180 or whatever. Yeah. Um, but I think it'll be super beneficial for them to be in there. And one of the things I was thinking is it'll be great for them to be in there and for me to be in there because then we can actually reference these things together when they're talking yeah. about it in their day-to-day -day practice. Um, so is that, I mean, is that unusual then I guess that you're saying that people are basically purchasing this for their teams, but they're not actually doing the work themselves and being there as well, or. Yeah, this is probably the biggest product leader mistake I see is that they think about it as my team needs training and they forget about the evolution they themselves have to go through. Um, and actually what's really hard for a lot of product leaders is that, um, the world has changed right? So they don't have a lot of experience firsthand working this way because these practices didn't exist when they were an individual contributor. And so I think it's actually just as important that these leaders get hands-on experience working this way so that they know how to better coach their teams and they know how to manage teams that work this way. Um, so it's not rare. I do have leaders that equally want to participate and they join the masterclass or they join the community, but it's not the most common situation. I see a lot of leaders especially at larger companies, frame it as my team needs training, whereas really the whole organization needs training. Yeah, 
um, maybe another opportunity on your opportunity solution tree, helping get those product leaders to realize that yeah. they need they need it too. You know what? I've thought about this a lot. In fact, um, in January, 2021, I wrote that that was an opportunity that was like on my horizon. I'm starting to rethink it. And that's because one of the things I've learned with the book coming out, I did the best job I could to like write the best book. And I still get questions every day that are really good questions that I didn't get into in the book. And it's really opening my eyes to like how much more support and more content and more courses and just more stuff we need for teams to adopt this way of working. And so I don't think I'm gonna expand into the leadership realm. We have other people that do that. Melissa Perry runs a CPO accelerator. My partner, Hope Gurion does leadership coaching. Um, there's tons of other people that work at the leadership level. Um, I think I really am gonna stay focused on I want to create resources that help any individual contributor and any product trio who wants to adopt these habits to change their behavior. Claire, fair enough. So uh, thinking about what's next for you, um, you've spoken a little bit about some of the experimentations that you're still running. Um, I'm curious, you you said that there was a point, right? Um, looking back at my notes, where you started to kind of feel like, I can't quite, you know, 90 people a year, but I want to, I want to impact more. I want to scale. Do you, do you notice any of those itches in yourself right now that give you an idea of like what you want to do next? What's exciting for you? Um, Anything you can talk to us about what you see the future looking like? Yeah. So I'll talk, there's some short-term things and then there's some longer-term things. So on the short-term horizon, um, we do have a number of courses we're about to release. We have all the content ready. I'm just working through some course software nightmares before I can expand in that realm. That's like the boring side of business. Um, But we do have a course on identifying assumptions and a course on testing assumptions that we will be releasing as soon as we solve some software issues. Um, Our course business is now, um, we're now, I just announced on January 19th, we're now a course first business. So we do still coach, but we ask that you take our masterclass before you engage us with coaching. Um, I personally am not doing any more coaching. Hope Gurion is taking over that business. And I am focused on designing courses and teaching courses. And I absolutely love it. And then the other piece that I'm focused on is I really do think this uh, membership community that I've created, it's called CDH Membership. Um, You can learn about it at members.producttalk.org. Is the way to bring coaching to the masses. I think it's a really hard problem to solve, uh, but I'm really committed to solving it. It's been one of the most fun things I've ever created. I really love, like I hang out in Slack all day, every day, interacting with people. It's a ton of fun. I love our community calls. Um, It's a really nice way to remind myself that product people are really passionate and they just need support. Um, And so that's, I love that. Like for the short term, I personally am focused on getting our courses out the door because we have more already queued up and really building this membership program. Longer term, uh, one of the gaps I see in the book is I can I I want to dive a lot more into this problem around creating ethical products and helping teams surface ethical assumptions and also just changing some of our discovery activities to be more inclusive. Um, we're seeing a lot of people in the industry talk about that, but a lot of it is still at that like 30,000 foot, like we should do this. And I want to start to dive in and experiment with like, how do we make this practical? How do we actually make this actionable? Because I talk to product teams every day who desperately want to play in this realm, and we just don't know how. Um, That's definitely a longer horizon thing because I don't have the answers, but I want to start diving in and experimenting in that realm. 
there's a group, uh, Equity Army, like the disclosure, I'm part of it, but they are focusing on how to build uh, inclusive products and trying to give those teams um, some skill, some, some basically some eBooks on key components, key steps to take, but what isn't really well-defined at all is from a discovery perspective, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that would be so valuable. So I'm excited to see you uh, when you get to that horizon, to that part of your business, be able to start to tackle that. Yeah, I am too. I think it's a really important topic. I think most product teams have good intent. We just don't know how to operationalize that good intent. Absolutely. Well, uh, I'm excited to see what what happens, where things go. For people who want to learn more about how to leverage your business and knowing, as you said, that you're course first, uh, they just go to your website, I'm assuming, is the best way to get in touch with you, producttalk.org. Is that right? Yeah. So producttalk.org has everything you need. In fact, on January 19th, we just published a blog post where we talked about like, here's the best way to engage with us. And I can outline the steps. Like it starts with If you don't have a copy of the book, get the book. Um, And tons of people are asking about the Audible book. I'm going into the studio next month to record it. It should be out this spring. Um, So that's the first thing. If you haven't read the book, I really did pour everything I know into this book. So that's step one. If you want support putting the book into practice, practice, that's what this membership community is for. It's $19 a month. Um, You're in it. You know how it is. Like, it's just, we just have amazing daily conversations about real world situations. And then um, if you want to dive in more and build more skill, we do have online courses. We do still have our coaching program. If you're a product leader listening, I still recommend get the book for your team. Send them to join our membership program. We, of course, can teach courses for just your team. Um, So you can send us an email at Teresa at producttalk.org to learn more about those options. Um, But it really is, we're trying to design this as like, the book is the most cost-effective way to just level up. And then we know you need support as you put it into practice. So there's sort of follow on steps for you. I love it. And I really love how you guys have made it so accessible. I mean, for people listening, it is very low friction to, to start to experiment and um, apply this. So sound like I'm selling your services. I'm not. I'm just speaking as a product leader <laughs> that it is very helpful. Um, okay, Teresa, we're going to ask you the question that we always save for the end and ask everyone. Um, say for all of us product geeks in the world that there was a museum we could go visit and it had the best or the most important products in the world. What would you say should be in that museum and why? I'm hoping people don't find my answer is political because I don't mean it this way. Uh, (laughs) But I'm going to say vaccines. And that's because like this, the last two years has made it so evident how critical vaccines are in our world. And like we, our grandparents probably remember polio, but I don't know anybody who had polio, right? Like it's just sort of astounding to me what we've been able to accomplish with science in the vaccine realm. And even just looking back at the last two years, it's astounding to me that we discovered a novel virus. And within two years, we don't just have a vaccine, but a large percentage of the world population is vaccinated. Um, And I get goosebumps thinking about it. It's really cool. I am going to go out on a limb and make a guess here, but from the little bit that I know about you, I think you would really enjoy Michael Lewis's The Premonition, which is- I just read it. Did you? Did you like it? I just read it. You know what? Okay, Michael Lewis is an amazing storyteller and he told an amazing story. And there's some things in that book that blew my mind. And especially some of those scientists just have cool backstories. But I feel like Michael Lewis doesn't always tell the whole story. 
And his books always leave me wanting to know the other side. So for that book in particular, I really want to hear from somebody from the CDC who will defend themselves, right? Because I feel like (laughs) he just painted the CDC as this totally irresponsible, (laughs) incompetent organization. And I'm sure some of that is true. They are a political body and I'm sure there's more to the story. So like, I really enjoyed it. And there's a lot about the book that blew my mind. And it also felt a little bit unfair. Like it felt really one-sided. You need to hear the other side. There's another, I was trying to find it in my, um, in my Libby app, but I can't, I'll send it to you afterwards. There's another one that I was told actually to read because it complements and provides more, uh, more oh, perspectives. So I'll send it to you. If you that down, definitely send it to me. <laughs> okay. So I heard about premonition. I was on a call. Um, actually Brad Feld recommended it. He recommended, yep. <laughs> so he recommended, um, premonition and pair it with the fiction book, the end of men. So the end of men, it is a gut wrenching book. It is, I barely like it, it horrified me. It's about a pandemic where the disease kills men. Like reading this, of men. just and looked it, it up. Um, Looks it great. is, it was one of the hardest books I've ever read. Like it was, it's gut, it's gut wrenching. Uh, but it's really, she, the author started writing it before COVID even started, which is amazing. Like I'm yeah. sure this book is a bestseller because the timing was impeccable. Uh, <laughs> it is gut-wrenching, but reading those two together was absolutely fascinating. And I have to give a hat tip to Brad Feld because he recommended both. Nice. Okay, excellent. Well, for future book tips, go to him. Uh, yeah. And I will definitely be checking out The End of Men because this has uh, my my interests all over it. Not that I have anything against men. I don't want them to go, <laughs> go out. It's not a shout out to that gender. Okay. All right. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been lovely. And we wish you and the, the team the best of luck scaling um, the magic that you guys are delivering already. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to the podcast, guys. Be sure to share the word of product-led growth far and wide and let your colleagues, friends, family, neighbors, and anyone you think who would like to know that there's a kick-ass product podcast on offer from the Product-Led Alliance. If you haven't already, don't forget to sign up to the Slack community and check out all our other great content, upcoming events, and other ways to get involved at productledalliance.com. And let's come back again next time to talk more about the head, the heart of product.